That day in 1964 started out as usual. I walked from the place that would be my home that summer, uh, the small house of a struggling family who had been brave enough to offer a bed in their two-room home to movement workers. And I headed to the SNCC office. I didn't know the day would end with my escape from a white mob. I was one of those who worked the 800 phone line that kept us in touch with all of our SNCC projects in Mississippi, Alabama, Southwest Georgia, and Arkansas, checking on any church burnings or arrests or beatings of voter registration workers or others who might have been killed or beaten by white folks just at random to try to keep black people in line. So I and others would call our project staff twice a day and carefully take down the information they gave us. Then I called the, the local FBI office in Jackson, Mississippi. Now back then, the FBI agents, uh, all of them um, in the South were all white men. And they were often former Southern law officers who'd gotten a lucky promotion to, to be FBI staff. And they all made clear when we called that they really couldn't care less about the violence we were reporting. And no wonder, you know, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had tried in so many ways to destroy the movement. In fact, he publicly said that those three particular missing civil rights workers were probably just hiding, um, as he said, quote, to inflame the situation, unquote. So I, young Judy Richardson, who had grown up thinking that, you know, Mr. Policeman is my friend, had to force these hostile white FBI agents mm -hmm. to take down the details of a church burning or a shooting, changing to a voice that said, you will listen to me. Mm -hmm. So now, on that July night in 1964, mm -hmm. I was walking, um, I was working in our mm -hmm. office in the black mm -hmm. section of Greenwood, Mississippi, mm -hmm. when June Johnson mm -hmm. rushes in to say, I have to drive her mm -hmm. and two other local black teenagers to Greenwood Segregated Hospital. She says, we got to go now. We got to go now to the hospital. Jake and Silas McGee, they went to the movies again, just to know mm -hmm. the theater had just been integrated. And when they came out, there was a big mob of white folks and someone threw a rock through the car window and glass flew mm -hmm. into Silas's eye. We got to go. Mm -hmm. So says June. Now, just to know, Silas, then 21 years old, and his other, um, older brother, Jake, did everything together, including working in the movement. And after the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed, they especially wanted to go to the white movie theater to enjoy the films that showed there, just like everyone else. Well, no, but they kept trying. Mm -hmm. And just about a, a word about June Johnson too. She came from a strong movement family in Greenwood. The year before, at age 15, June had been badly beaten in a Winona, Mississippi jail, along with the legendary Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer and three other movement workers mm -hmm. just for sitting on the white side of an interstate bus station. Mm -hmm. But that sure hadn't stopped June because here she was saying I needed to drive them in the SNCC car to the hospital. So we run to the car and I drive at the speed limit mm -hmm. as I had been taught to do so we wouldn't be arrested on some bogus speed, uh, mm -hmm. speeding charge. Then a white uh, couple pulls alongside mm -hmm. us and I look over at them and I mm -hmm. see the same hate-filled expressions mm -hmm we saw on the faces of most white Southerners who thought that this movement, and certainly those trying to equalize power through the vote, were the enemy. Then they pulled back. That's when we hear a bang. And June says, Judy, hurry up, they're shooting at us. And I say, no, 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 June, that's just a backfire. Now, she looked at me like I was crazy. 
I mean, she was from Greenwood, and I was from Tarrytown, New York, and knew nothing. But I do speed up. And finally, we pull into the small outdoor parking lot in front of the hospital's front door. But there's a large mob of white folks with guns and baseball bats. So we jump out of the car and hightail it into the hospital. June immediately runs to see about the McGee's. I stay in the waiting room and begin to make calls. Now remember, this is before cell phones. So I'm pumping dimes into the public coin phone. Also, as soon as I arrive at the hospital, I notice six FBI agents sitting in the reception area, looking uncomfortable, but doing nothing as usual. But there had been a change that summer. Unlike the national reaction after all those other Southern black folks had been killed or beaten when they tried to vote, this time was different because two of the three missing civil rights workers were white Northerners. So the FBI was forced to pay a bit more attention. Besides, this was 1950, uh, 1964, Freedom Summer. So over a thousand primarily white college students had joined this campaign, organized by local movement leaders, along with SNCC and CORE, and under the umbrella of COFO, the Council of Federated Organizations. And the object couldn't have been more basic, to register black Mississippi voters without getting them killed without getting them killed. And all those white students had brought with them political pressure from towns and cities across the country. And most important, they brought the national media to Mississippi. So I began calling on the public phone in the hospital's reception room to our Atlanta SNCC office and our friends of SNCC network around the country. But most important, I called the wonderful John Doerr at the Justice Department. Now, clearly this is not William Barr's Justice Department, right? But I had to leave messages because John Doerr wasn't in. Then suddenly a rock comes flying through the picture window in the reception area. And I had never seen FBI agents run so quickly. I mean, behind the wall, they ran behind the wall, the hallway that led to the rest of the hospital. And I knew, I knew that FBI agents never did anything but take notes, even when a federal law was being broken. And still I got enraged. I started yelling at them, all six agents now sitting on the floor of the hallway. Why don't you do something? You're the FBI. And they looked at me like I was a crazy lady. So I keep peeking around the wall. And when I think the mob has moved away from the reception window, I go back to calling the Justice Department. Finally, June returns to say the doctors um, have been able to take the glass out of Silas's eye. And it appears that his eyesight won't be harmed. She also says that his mother is with him, as is his older brother, Clarence. There were three sons. Now, once I heard that, I knew it was okay for me to leave. I mean, Clarence was a U.S. paratrooper on furlough who did not play. And their mother, Mrs. Laura McGee, was fierce. Their family owned a farm, which they allowed the movement to use for rallies and to secure bail money for jailed movement workers. Plus, Mrs. McGee was clear on the issue of self-defense. She guarded their house with a Winchester rifle and a Mississippi policeman once shoved her to the ground with his nightstick during a demonstration. She got up, then grabbed the officer's nightstick and pushed him down. Other demonstrators had to pull her off him. And this was not the only incident like that. So it's okay for us to leave, but how do we get through the white mob that's still in the outdoor parking lot. Now there are two endings to this story. Ending number one, 
and the one I told for years during, during my talks. It was, I and other movement workers had called so many people that by that time, three legendary SNCC organizers were waiting to escort us, minus June, back to the SNCC office. James Foreman, our larger-than-life executive secretary, and two Mississippi SNCC project directors, Stokely Carmichael, who becomes Kwame Ture, and Ivanhoe Donaldson. Now fast forward to ending number two. It's 1988, and the film Mississippi Burning has just premiered in movie theaters. I'm sitting with June Johnson and other SNCC workers at the ABC TV studio for the news magazine 2020. We're in the green room where guests hang out till the, the show begins, and we're about to tape a segment where we SNCC folk discuss the film. As some of you know, Mississippi Burning is a fictionalized account of the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schmerner, the three movement workers whom I mentioned earlier and whose bodies were finally found in an earthen dam several weeks after their disappearance. A deputy sheriff and others were found guilty of their murder, but didn't serve much time, if any at all. Not much has changed here. The film got an Academy Award nomination, but civil rights workers strongly condemned it. I mean, there's no mention in the film of the Black Mississippi movement, mm -hmm. and in the film, mm -hmm. FBI agents are portrayed as the heroes, not mm -hmm. the enemies of the movement that they actually were. So, you know, a lot of us were really angry. Mm -hmm. Now, here we are, we're waiting in the green one, room, and I say to June, June, you remember when we were surrounded in that hospital and we got rescued by Foreman and Stokely and Ivanhoe, and she says, no, we weren't. She said, don't you remember? You kept peeking around that wall so you could go back to making calls to John Doerr. And finally, you or someone got through to the Justice Department, mm -hmm. and then you forced the sheriff to escort you back to the SNCC office. You said you wouldn't leave unless he did. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my gosh, I've been telling it wrong all these years. Now, sometime later, movement scholar Dr. Emily Crosby sent me a copy of my deposition from that time. Later, I read an account of the incident in a seminal book on the Mississippi movement, Local People, by John Dittmer. Um, oh, there's another also wonderful one by uh, Charles Payne. Um, I got the light of freedom. But both um, John and Emily confirmed that I refused to leave until the sheriff agreed, much against his will, to escort me and the others in my car back to the SNCC mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened to the McGee family? They continued being a bulwark of the Greenville, Mississippi movement even though white vigilantes shot into, firebombed, and eventually burned their house to the ground. And Silas? The next year, in 1965, he was shot and almost died when a white man, they suspected a white policeman who'd been harassing him, shot him point blank in the head. The bullet entered just below his temple and lodged in his throat. They rushed him to the university, to University Hospital in Jackson. They got the bullet out and he survived, and he continued working in the movement. He also became the youngest member of SNCC's executive committee. It was folks like these, the Johnsons and the McGees and the Dewey Greens family who organized and sustained the movement for voting rights and economic justice. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are on our SNCC digital website, snickdigital.org, get the plug-in. It's a collaboration that we have with, SNCC, um, with Duke University. And now other strong organizers are continuing that fight for justice and to preserve our democracy. More per yeah, let me end more personally. More personally, that experience and just being in the movement, surrounded by amazingly brilliant and courageous people 
brought out in me a strength I didn't even know I had. And it's a strength I've carried with me the rest of my life, still supported by SNCC's band of brothers and sisters in a circle of trust. And thank you for listening. Judy, thank you so much for your detailed and vivid memories and for your ongoing work to make sure the history of the civil rights movement is not forgotten. 